This is Our American Stories. And the Thanksgiving story, well, you're about to hear it for the hour. It didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But the story of its miraculous birth and the pangs that accompanied its delivery to the new world began hundreds of years before this inauguration. What you are about to hear is the spellbinding story of how it all began and what it means to us today. They want to hit a Thanksgiving song. All right. All right. This is uh, this is a Thanksgiving song. I hope you enjoy it. Turkey, lurkey, do and turkey, lurkey, dap. I eat that turkey, then I take a nap. Thanksgiving is a special night. Oh, I love turkey on Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent. It's not something that we have been able to commercialize. But there's something going on here more than feasting family and football. And I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt-buckled paper hat. What is it about these pilgrims? Why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the New World? They were always viewed as irrelevant, weird, and different. They didn't start a college. The Massachusetts colony did. That college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention? That I may truly unfold the story of Plymouth Plantation, I must begin at the very root. As with many immigrants, their story begins thousands of miles away. It is told through the writings of one man who lived it. The year is 1607. The place, Scrooby Manor, in North Nottinghamshire, England. Under the flag of religion. Then said the Lord, I shall endeavor to manifest this history in a plain style with singular regard unto the simple truth in all things, at least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain. That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the New World is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as Of Plymouth Plantation, but it is not published until some 230 years later, in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. Bradford writes that reading the scriptures makes a great impression upon him, and the more he reads, the more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him and the simplicity and purity of the gospel. Oh, Father, who 
heaven, hallowed be thy He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right, that they prayed to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction. And I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person who was improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607, Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm, but his passion is his faith. And without a prince, two men become his mentors. This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years. And without teraphim. Mr. Brewster, a reverend man like a father to me, became an elder of our church. Love a woman beloved of her. These two men guided us in all things. It is they who labored in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel. Yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the Lord their God. One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, professor of church history at Oxford University. The old church had power because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power, we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century. But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail for not attending the Church of England and for starting their own separate congregation that secretly meets in people's homes. In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The Church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church, and a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit. And when we come back, more of William Bradford's struggles back in England. We're celebrating the story of Thanksgiving here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Thanksgiving, 
and we go back to William Bradford and his struggles back in England. These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can never be purified. They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists make another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims decide to run away, to leave England in mass, to leave behind everything that they have known because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam, Holland, which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world, known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there, and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500-plus alehouses. So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year, they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again, but where? Most are content with their labors here. We labor only as God wishes. Yet some prefer and choose the prisons in England rather than liberty in Holland with these afflictions. Faith, if some better and easier place could be found, it could draw many and take away these discouragements. And where would we go? Where could we go? What's of America? There are vast and unpeopled countries in America which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is unpeopled. There are no civil men there, but only savages who mean. This is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, People were dying at a frightening rate every year. The pilgrims decide to make their home in the new world where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made. They use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name. She was called the Speedwell, and this was intended to be a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen, it would provide them with a a method of escape uh, from the New World. About 55 pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the Speedwell for England. With a prosperous wind, we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found the bigger ship come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company. The pilgrims see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. 
This supply ship is called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a merchant vessel, a cargo ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine in its hold. She was beak-bowed, square-rigged, with high castle-like structures fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation of the early 17th century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5, 1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows. We refreshed ourselves after our tears with the singing of psalms, making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice. And indeed, it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard. And then with mutual embraces and tears, they took their leaves, one of the other, which proved to be the last leave to many of them. After three years of planning and preparation, two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, are finally on their way to America on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history. They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding a new colony. They weren't soldiers, they were not emissaries of a foreign government, they were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire. The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man, but he is a remarkably decent one. He is so moved by the pilgrim's devotion and faith that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the pilgrim's provisions to America and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days, and then to their shock and dismay, the Speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon after the Speedwell has trouble, the master of the Speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger William Bradford chronicles this moment. We had not gone far, but Mr. Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put further to sea till she was mended. Because of the leaky speedwell, the ships do not turn back once, but two times. Can you imagine the miles that they retrace their steps all the way back to England? The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the speedwell. It's early September. This is not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out. William Bradford writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and get off the ship for good. He also writes, it was judged that the speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage. 
upon which it was resolved to dismiss her and proceed with the Mayflower alone. On September 6th, 1620, fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic. Because of the Speedwell having to stay behind, there are many more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were ultimately 102 passengers on, on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So you, you, know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. It was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human habitation. Along with 102 passengers on the Mayflower was between 25 and 35 crewmen on board. All being now compact together in one ship, we put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us. The story of Thanksgiving continues after these messages. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But my goodness, there's so much more to the story. When we come back, that trip across the Atlantic to the New World, here on Our American Stories, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is our American story celebrating Thanksgiving. We now pick up with the pilgrims sailing across the Atlantic on board the Mayflower with Captain Jones and his crew of delinquents. The rough and tumble crew do not take their cues from their kind captain. Bradford writes, Yet, according to the usual manner, many were afflicted with seasickness. A bloody psalm singing, God-fearing, puke-stocking bean farmer going to America. <laughs> See them quail, living little kicksy-wixies. One of the seamen of a lusty, able body, which made him the more haughty. He would always be condemning the poor people in their sickness. 
and cursing us daily with grievous execrations. <laughs> Into the bucket, girl! Worse than the owls! The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. If you are seasick, which many are, and have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a slop bucket and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck. And a lot of people probably miss, so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks. Shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come, and that is miserable. You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted, to preserve it. One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or a passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration and hypothermia, as well as having long-term effects like high blood pressure. The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in, in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it. And going to sea, the ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to, uh, you know, rather a lot of beer. The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic, and the relentless teasing of the pilgrims is about to end for good. Of the haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus, his curses light on his own head. And it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him. The death of a sailor is answered by the arrival of a new passenger. Oceanus Hopkins. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9th, 1620, after more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones. But their jubilation quickly dims as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination. Muskets first. Keep them dry. On Friday, December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea-weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore. Everything was wrong. I mean, they had to reach the shore by wading through ice-cold water to the shoreline. And Bradford says, at one point, The weather was very cold, and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard we were as if we had been glazed. And they caught cold and they died. In the harsh winter ahead, half of them die. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing. 
but the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder. In January and February, sometimes two and three died in a day. Bradford calls it the heart of winter. It's just a very grim time. The biggest toll, the most painful toll, was by March, 13 of the 18 wives die. They die keeping their children alive. All seven daughters live, and 10 of the 13 sons live. Somehow they keep their hopes up by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday. It's fair, and the sky is blue. They are still weak. They are still fearful when they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out, Indian, Indian coming. coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome! The pilgrims responded in kind. And then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is, Have you got any beer? The pilgrims are caught flat-footed. They don't have any beer. They respond, Our beer is gone. Would you like some brandy? And the answer, to no one's surprise, is a wholehearted yes. As they drink the brandy, they discover that this particular Indian, whose name is Samoset, developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What Samoset said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then, just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life, some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves, including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery, and he becomes a Christian. He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish, and learns to pray every day, and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars, who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character, he gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections, as many as were able began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, shown us the manner how to set it. 
Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing. The fish helps the earth. It's if we're feeding our mother. He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for our good. Squanto never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies. This is Our American Stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And when we come back, the final chapter. This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And we pick it off with the pilgrims being back on their feet, thanks to Squanto, who teaches them how to survive in the new world and guides them in building a trusting relationship with a neighboring Indian tribe that he's been living with. Now let's return to the story. On October of 1621, Bradford writes about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. Thus our peace and acquaintance was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together. They've made peace with the Indians, they had a good harvest. So they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast. It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path. You've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue. Squanto's close friend and Indian chief, Massasoit, arrives with 90 of his braves who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. The table is set and the first Thanksgiving prayer is said. Oh Lord, hear us, Lord. How few, weak, and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers. And yet, God, thou hast wrought this peace for us. Thou hast brought us these allies. The real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, 
These first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in them today. They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair, it's a male-dominated affair more than anything else. They put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength. Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Massazoid's men went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and others. One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks of respect. For three days we entertained and feasted. Three days of celebrating. In Native society, that's typical. As a matter of fact, that's probably short. Did the Wampanoags eat the English out of house and home during these three days? Quite possibly. But the English are free to come and visit the villages of their native allies and receive similar hospitality. That's how kin treat one another. That's what the Wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance. That's the point of the whole exercise. William Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford, though uncertain of the colony he founded, was certain about the final destination of his pilgrimage. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and being persuaded of them, and embracing them, and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God was not ashamed to be called their God. And he hath prepared for them a city. The pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves, and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory. We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. But part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery, that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, 
that day of thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief. And this abundance that is a relief from that loss. But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving, the Spikiotich family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss. Do we have gravy? It's truly an American holiday to me. I mean, this is our holiday. Nobody else has it like we do. The people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for. This is our American holiday. From Atlantic to Pacific, Gee, the traffic is terrific. Oh, Today in our society, where there are no clear answers, we look back at a time and a holiday such as Thanksgiving that once had clear answers. This is very simple. The pilgrims stood for piety. They stood for patriotism. They knew where they stood. We don't. So we look back and we see Thanksgiving as a time where everybody is in a golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure and there's football on the television, everything's wonderful. And it just fits very well. Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today. I think the people are conscious of that. The fact that they have food on the table, the fact that they can gather together, that has meaning to them and just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal. Those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say, we're lucky we have this. What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar. For the holidays you can't beat home sweet home For the holidays you can't beat home sweet And great job on that, Greg. And what a story that is. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. And we learned about the abundance. And my goodness, we learned about the scarcity. We learned about the joy, but we also learned about the grief. By the way, the grief of simply leaving home and leaving everything you know, that's grief. Anybody who's ever done that, I know my grandfather. He shared it with me. He left Lebanon but it was easier then. Leaving home, then losing so many people, so many women, so many men. What a story, a uniquely American story. 
and we share it with you here on Our American Stories. our American stories and the Thanksgiving story well you're about to hear it for the hour it didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863 but the story of its miraculous birth and the pangs that accompanied its delivery to the new world began hundreds of years before this inauguration what you are about to hear is the spellbinding story of how it all began and what it means to us today. They want to hit a Thanksgiving song. All right. All right. This is uh, this is a Thanksgiving song. I hope you enjoy it. Turkey, lurkey, do and turkey, lurkey, dap. I eat that turkey, then I take a nap. Thanksgiving is a special night. Oh, I love turkey on Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent. It's not something that we have been able to commercialize. But there's something going on here more than feasting, family, and football. And I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt-buckled paper hat. What is it about these pilgrims? Why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the New World? They were always viewed as irrelevant, weird, and different. They didn't start a college. The Massachusetts colony did. That college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention? As I may truly unfold the story of Plymouth Plantation, I must begin at the very root. As with many immigrants, their story begins thousands of miles away. It is told through the writings of one man who lived it. The year is 1607. The place, Scrooby Manor, in North Nottinghamshire, England. under the flag of religion. Then said the Lord, I shall endeavor to manifest this history in a plain style with singular regard unto the simple truth in all things. 
double vengeance unto them who At least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain. That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the New World is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as Of Plymouth Plantation, but it is not published until some 230 years later, in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. Bradford writes that reading the scriptures makes a great impression upon him, and the more he reads, the more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him and the simplicity and purity of the gospel. Oh, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right, that they prayed to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction. And I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person who was improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607, Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm, but his passion is his faith. And without a prince, two men become his mentors. This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years. And without Terrafin. Mr. Brewster, a reverend man like a father to me, became an elder of our church. Love a woman beloved of her. These two men guided us in all things. It is they who labored in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel. Yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the Lord their God. One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, professor of church history at Oxford University. The old church had power because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power, we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century. But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail for not attending the Church of England and for starting their own separate congregation 
that secretly meets in people's homes. In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The Church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church, and a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit. And when we come back, more of William Bradford's struggles back in England. We're celebrating the story of Thanksgiving here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Thanksgiving, and we go back to William Bradford and his struggles back in England. These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can never be purified. They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists make another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims decide to run away, to leave England in mass, to leave behind everything that they have known because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam, Holland, which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world, known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there, and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500-plus alehouses. So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year, they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again. But where? Most are content with their labors here. We labor only as God wishes. Yet some prefer and choose the prisons in England rather than liberty in Holland with these afflictions. Faith, if some better and easier place could be found, it could draw many and take away these discouragements. And where would we go? Where could we go? What's of America? There are vast and unpeopled countries in America which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is unpeopled. There are no civil men there, but only savages who mean 
This is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, people were dying at a frightening rate every year. The pilgrims decide to make their home in the New World, where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made. They use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name. She was called the Speedwell, and this was intended to be a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen, it would provide them with a, a method of escape uh, from the New World. About 55 pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the Speedwell for England. With a prosperous wind, we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found the bigger ship come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company. The pilgrims see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. This supply ship is called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a merchant vessel, a cargo ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine in its hold. She was beak-bowed, square-rigged, with high castle-like structures fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation of the early 17th century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5, 1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows. We refreshed ourselves, after our tears, with the singing of psalms, making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice. And indeed, it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard. And then, with mutual embraces and tears, they took their leaves, one of the other, which proved to be the last leave to many of them. After three years of planning and preparation, two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower are finally on their way to America on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history. They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding a new colony. They weren't soldiers, they were not emissaries of a foreign government, they were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire. The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man, but he is a remarkably decent one. He is so moved by the pilgrims' devotion and faith 
that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the Pilgrims' provisions to America and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days, and then to their shock and dismay, the Speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon after the Speedwell has trouble, the master of the Speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger William Bradford chronicles this moment. We had not gone far, but Mr. Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put further to sea till she was mended. Because of the leaky speedwell, the ships do not turn back once, but two times. Can you imagine the miles that they retrace their steps all the way back to England? The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the speedwell. It's early September. This is not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out. William Bradford writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and get off the ship for good. He also writes, it was judged that the speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage, upon which it was resolved to dismiss her and proceed with the Mayflower alone. On September 6th, 1620, fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic. Because of the speedwell having to stay behind, there are many more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were ultimately 102 passengers on, on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So, you, you know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. It was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human habitation. Along with 102 passengers on the Mayflower was between 25 and 35 crewmen on board. All being now compact together in one ship, we put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us. The story of Thanksgiving continues after these messages. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But my goodness, there's so much more to the story. When we come back, that trip across the Atlantic to the New World, here on Our American Stories, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org.
This is Our American Story, celebrating Thanksgiving. We now pick up with the Pilgrims sailing across the Atlantic on board the Mayflower with Captain Jones and his crew of delinquents. The rough-and-tumble crew do not take their cues from their kind captain. Bradford writes, Yet, according to the usual manner, many were afflicted with seasickness. A bloody psalm singing, God-fearing, puke-stocking bean farmer going to America. (laughs) (laughs) See that quail, living little kicksy-wixies. One of the seamen of a lusty, able body, which made him the more haughty. He would always be condemning the poor people in their sickness and cursing us daily with grievous execrations. (laughs) Into the bucket, girl! Worse than the animals! The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. If you are seasick, which many are, and have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a slop bucket and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck. And a lot of people probably miss, so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks. Shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come, and that is miserable. You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted, to preserve it. One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or a passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration and hypothermia, as well as having long-term effects like high blood pressure. The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in, in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it. And going to sea, the ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to you know, rather a lot of beer. The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic, and the relentless teasing of the pilgrims is about to end for good. Of the haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease, and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus, his curses light on his own head, and it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him. The death of a sailor is answered by the arrival of a new passenger. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9th, 1620, after more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones. I see it! But their jubilation quickly dims 
as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination. Muskets first. Keep them dry. On Friday, December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea-weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore. Everything was wrong. I mean, they had to reach the shore by wading through ice-cold water to the shoreline. And Bradford says, at one point, The weather was very cold, and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard we were as if we had been glazed. And they caught cold and they died. In the harsh winter ahead, half of them die. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing, but the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder. In January and February, sometimes two and three died in a day. Bradford calls it the heart of winter. It's just a very grim time. The biggest toll, the most painful toll, was by March, 13 of the 18 wives die. They die keeping their children alive. All seven daughters live, and ten of the thirteen sons live. Somehow they keep their hopes up by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday. It's fair, and the sky is blue. They're still weak, they are still fearful when they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out, Indian, Indian coming. coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome! The pilgrims responded in kind. And then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is, Have you got any beer? The pilgrims are caught flat-footed. They don't have any beer. They respond, Our beer is gone. Would you like some brandy? And the answer, to no one's surprise, is a wholehearted yes. As they drink the brandy, they discover that this particular Indian, whose name is Samoset, developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What Samoset said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then, just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life, some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves, including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery, and he becomes a Christian. 
He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish, and learns to pray every day, and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars, who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character, he gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections, As many as were able began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, shown us the manner how to set it. Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing. The fish helps the earth. It's if we're feeding our mother. He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for our good. Squanto never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies. This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And when we come back, the final chapter. This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving, and we pick it off with the pilgrims being back on their feet thanks to Squanto, who teaches them how to survive in the new world and guides them in building a trusting relationship with a neighboring Indian tribe that he's been living with. Now let's return to the story. On October of 1621, Bradford writes about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. Thus our peace and acquaintance was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together. They've made peace with the Indians, they had a good harvest. So they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast. It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path. You've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue. Squanto's close friend and Indian chief, Massasoit, arrives with 90 of his braves, who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. 
The table is set, and the first Thanksgiving prayer is said. Oh Lord, hear us, Lord. How few, weak, and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers. And yet, God, thou hast wrought this peace for us. Thou hast brought us these allies. The real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, these first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in them today. They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair. It's a male-dominated affair more than anything else. They put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength. Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Massazoid's men went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and others. One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks of respect. For three days we entertained and feasted. Three days of celebrating. In Native society, that's typical. As a matter of fact, that's probably short. Did the Wampanoags eat the English out of house and home during these three days? Quite possibly. But the English are free to come and visit the villages of their Native allies and receive similar hospitality. That's how kin treat one another. That's what the Wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance. That's the point of the whole exercise. William Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live, despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford, though uncertain of the colony he founded, was certain about the final destination of his pilgrimage. Abel. Enoch. Noah. Abraham, Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, not having seen them afar off, being persuaded of them, and embracing them, and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Wherefore God was not ashamed to be called their God. 
that he hath prepared for them, a city. The pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves, and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory. We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. But part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery, that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, that day of Thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief. And this abundance that is a relief from that loss. But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving, the Spikiotich family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss. Do we have gravy? It's truly an American holiday to me. I mean, this is our holiday. Nobody else has it like we do. The people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for. This is our American holiday. From Atlantic to Pacific, Gee, the traffic is terrific. Oh, Today in our society, where there are no clear answers, we look back at a time and a holiday such as Thanksgiving that once had clear answers. This is very simple. The pilgrims stood for piety. They stood for patriotism. They knew where they stood. We don't. So we look back and we see Thanksgiving as a time where everybody is in a golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure and there's football on the television. Everything's wonderful and it just fits very well. Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today. I think the people are conscious of that. The fact that they have food on the table, the fact that they can gather together, that has meaning to them and just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal. Those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say, we're lucky we have this. What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar. For the holidays you can't beat home sweet home. For the holidays you 
And great job on that, Greg. And what a story that is. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. And we learned about the abundance. And my goodness, we learned about the scarcity. We learned about the joy, but we also learned about the grief. By the way, the grief of simply leaving home and leaving everything you know, that's grief. Anybody who's ever done that, I know my grandfather. He shared it with me. He left Lebanon But it was easier then. Leaving home, then losing so many people, so many women, so many men. What a story, a uniquely American story. And we share it with you here on Our American Stories.